Okay, y'all turn to Romans 2. We're going to look at 17 through 29. Uh, Andrew Delbaco, Delbanco, I got to get the onco, is a humanities professor at Columbia University. He was doing research on Alcoholics Anonymous. So he's attending AA meetings all over the country, right? Because he's doing research. On one Saturday morning, he was in an AA meeting in New York City in a church basement, and he was listening to, quote, a crisply dressed young man talk about his problems. And those of you that are familiar with AA or some form thereof, you know, that's normal to come in and tell your story because part of telling your story is part of how there's healing that takes place. And hearing other people's story is part of your healing process too. But, but what was unique about this man's particular story was this. In his story, he was absolutely faultless. As he narrated his story, uh, he blamed all his problems and all his mistakes and all his imperfections and all his faults on other people. And then he went on to highlight like how he was going to seek vengeance and give payback to all the people that had wronged him in his life. Del Banco wrote, his every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. Well, there was a young man, while this young man was speaking, there was an African-American male in his 40s with dreadlocks and dark sunglasses on that was sitting next to Del Banco. And he leans over and he whispers into Del Banco's ear this, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. Okay. What are we doing in Romans right now? We are in one long section, tough section, 64 verses, 118 through 320 on the need for the gospel. And what's Paul's goal in all of this? What's his goal for you and me? You know what it is? Four sermons, five sermons. I don't think we can take more than that, but there's 64 verses of it. His goal is is for you and I to achieve low self-esteem. And Paul says that low self-esteem is a harvest for life. That it is the good that could happen to you and me. So please stand for the hearing of God's word and let's achieve low self-esteem. Okay, I'll be reading Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are poor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would grant, given grant what this passage talks about, would you give us uh, a many, or, or mainly, or if possible, for some of us, a major circumcision of the heart. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would put us back together again. We ask that you would restore us. We ask that you would heal us. We ask that you would shine on the page even now and give us Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, this is what we need to remember. The Apostle Paul is writing to who? Who's this letter to? The church in Rome. Christians. So as we go through these 64 verses, the message is primarily to Christians. It's to you and me. It's so easy when we're in this section to just tune out and say, of course, this is for the irreligious people, and this is for those, those stuck-up religious people, whoever they might be, right? But Paul is writing this 64 verses to you and me. So, when Paul is talking in 118 through 32... Just a quick point here. He's primarily speaking to Christians. And what's he trying to say to you and me? He's trying to say, look, irreligious people need the gospel. People who don't go to church need the gospel. He's trying to say to those people who question and doubt and are skeptical about God, about the church, about the Bible, they need, they need the gospel. People who try to find their freedom and their fulfillment and their flourishing in creation, instead of the creator, need the gospel. One of the things Paul wants us to see is that the irreligious person is intensely seeking salvation. He wants us to see that everyone in the world is after what's in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Every human being wants that kind of power, (laughs) wants that kind of life, The issue is that the irreligious person is seeking salvation by creation, not by creator. Well, then we go to the next section, right? And we look at Romans 2, 1 through 16, which we looked at last week. And religious people need the gospel. Now, here here are the good people. These are people that believe in God. These are people that obey the law, read their Bibles. They pray, they tithe. 40%? Oh my word, that's convicting. 40% your people gave. Okay, throw that one out. They gave 40%. These are people that go to church. They need the gospel. Paul is saying. People who look at irreligious people and say, I'm not like them. As Paul said in 2, 1 through 16. Religious people need the gospel. Now we're in Romans 2, 17 through 29, and Paul is continuing his message of religious people needing the gospel, but he's, he's going with a new tactic. You know what his new tactic is? He walks into a bunch of religious people and there's this beehive that's sitting in the middle of them and they didn't know about it and he takes out a stick and he whacks it. He stirs the pot. He's William Wallace and he goes, I'm gonna pick a fight, right? That's what Paul is doing here. Look at what's happened in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, can you imagine Paul walking up 
to a group of Jewish people and saying, if you call yourself a Jew. Do you know what those Jewish people would say to him? What? What did you just say? If I am a Jew, I am a Jew. Who the are you? One commentary suggests if you really want to feel the force of what's happening here with Paul, you substitute Christian for Jew. You ready? If you call yourself a Christian. In other words, Paul is saying to the church in Rome and to the church at Redeemer and the church at Uganda and the church everywhere, don't assume you're spiritually okay just because you call yourself a Christian. Watch what he does in verse 17. Don't assume you're spiritually okay just because you rely on the law. Now this is absolutely shocking because relying on the law means you have a solid commitment to obeying God. You have a solid commitment to doing what God says and avoiding what he says not to do. This is utterly shocking. Don't think that you're spiritually okay just because you rely on the law, Paul says. He keeps going, verse 17. Don't assume you're spiritually okay just because you brag or boast in God. This means bragging or boasting in your relationship with God, but bragging or boasting in your relationship with God because of something you do or don't do. So churches break down by traditions. We have a tradition, right? And we we love our tradition. That's why I'm, I'm in this tradition. But what would our tradition have a tendency to brag or boast about. Man, we got correct theology. Sound doctrine. Or we have this really, really cool bulletin in red. Liturgy. Right? And this is what I wish in other traditions. What would other traditions boast about or brag about in their relationship with God? I want more of this tradition in us. How about deep passion and deep feeling? Some folks brag about that or boast about that. Some folks brag about their, what, their tradition, their rituals, their ceremony, their architecture. And for the life of me, some people even brag about Robert's rules. Who in the world brags about Robert's rules? I've seen them. I know who they are. I avoid them like the plague. Some people brag about musical aesthetics and architecture and the quality of the music, right? Let's keep going. Verse 18, don't assume you're spiritually okay just because you're instructed from the law. Oh, now it gets deeper, right? This means being able to make correct ethical and moral decisions about the law. It also means that you're able to spot when other people are not. You're very good and perceptive at being able to see that people are making wrong choices and you know the wrong choices that they're making, It's a deep following of the law and all its implications and its applications. It's a commitment to the law so much so that it's memorized, it's mastered, it's serious business. Verses 19 through 20, look at those. Don't assume that you're spiritually okay just because you're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a teacher of others. You know what this means? This means that we're self-aware. You're a self-aware person that you actually know you're not spiritually blind anymore. And you're fully aware that other people are spiritually 
blind. You're aware that you can see, you're aware that others can't, and you're going to bring the light of the law to those who can't see. And Paul says, just because you're like that, it doesn't mean you're spiritually okay. And then finally, look at the last one, verses 25 through 29. Don't assume you're spiritually okay because you're circumcised. We would say because you're baptized. Or we would say because you're orthodox. Because you have the right beliefs, you have the right behavior, and you have the right religious disciplines and practice in your life. Because you have a quiet time every morning. What in the world is Paul doing, y'all? I don't know about you, but this makes me really uncomfortable when I read this. And we actually kind of enter into it and kind of pull it out like we just did. I, I, get, I get nervous. I might even break out in a sweat when we do this. What is Paul doing? Why is he whacking the beehive? You know why? Because he's out for the good of religious people. He is out for religious people to flourish. What's the good? Achievement of low self-esteem. What is low self-esteem? Oh my word, is that not like, I mean, educational curriculum is all determined by self-esteem these days. I mean, what I'm about to say is so controversial, and I know I'm going to step on toes, and I know I'm going to hurt feelings, and I'm going to give you a low self-esteem. Self-esteem is a big deal today. What is it? What is a low self-esteem? Is a low self-esteem beating yourself up? So you actually got to walk around, and you kind of have this this low-grade fever of just kind of self-hatred and self-loathing, feeling inferior, thinking thoughts of inferiority and just having a low opinion of yourself. Is that what low self-esteem is? Or is it passing the trial or the, the courtroom on to somebody else and letting someone else define you and judge you and someone else look down upon you and condemn you and accuse you? Someone else criticize you and then it gets into the core of your being and, and you feel beat up. What is low self-esteem? You know, it's absolutely shocking the book of Romans tells us. And you know what the book of Romans says? Humility. A city boy visited his cousin who lived in a country on a farm. It's one of those kind of stories. He's never seen wheat growing in a field, so he's looking out at the wheat for the first time, and it's an impressive sight, the golden brown flourishing, fruitful harvest like a wave of brown wheat symbolizing life and harvest and promise, right? The city boy cousin noticed that some of the wheat stood tall in the field while other parts of the wheat just hung and sagged all the way down to the ground. Now, he's been in the country for a while, so he's thinking he's country smart. And he thinks that he's ready now for FarmersOnly.com. Come on, I thought that was a good one. I hate that commercial, don't you? I mean, that's the most unbelievable commercial. Farmers, all right, whatever. All right, so the dude, he, so he walks up to his cousin and he says, man, I bet the tall standing wheat is the best wheat in the field. 
and his country boy cousin breaks off the head of one of the tall ones, breaks off the head of one of the ones bent on the ground, and he rubs them. Out of the tall one, plop, plop, two seeds. The bent one to the ground, whoa! Seeds spilling out, pouring out, loads, buckets of life and promise and flourishing and harvest. Bent over people are loaded with life. Humility is a full harvest. That's low self-esteem. So why do religious people find it so difficult to achieve low self-esteem? Why is it so difficult to achieve humility? Why is it? Well, look at verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, meaning the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. What keeps religious people from achieving humility? Religious people want praise. Religious people want honor. Religious people want glory. Religious people want to be somebody. Religious people want distinction. Religious people want respect. Religious people want to be celebrated. They want to be applauded. They want to be adored. Now please hear me. There's nothing wrong with wanting praise. Did you catch that in verse 29? Do you see where it says his praise? It's assumed in this passage. Wanting praise is assumed. It's like the desire and the need for praise is what it means and is part of what it means to be human. If you take the want of praise out of a human being, you don't have an image bearer. You were made to hear praise. You were designed to feel praise. You were created and formed so that you would take praise into your very being and it would flourish with life. And you would come alive and that praise permanently in your heart supports the rest of your life. Why do religious people find it so difficult to achieve humility? The answer is not because they need or want or were made for praise. The answer is they want the praise of others instead of the praise of God, according to this text. Now, Paul just did something that's absolutely breathtaking. You know what he just did? In one single stroke, he just put religious people and irreligious people on the same page. Both are desperate for salvation. Both want Romans 1, 16 and 17. And both have the same salvation strategy. Salvation by creation, 
not by creator. The religious person wants salvation by the praise of others, not by God's praise. So how do we know if we're doing this? I mean, okay, don't you wish there was some kind of praise test out there? Almost like, I've seen, I'm, Brent's one of my dear friends, so he, he's, he's diabetic. I don't know if I, is that okay to say that? I guess I just said it, so it's done. But he pricks himself. I mean, he's got to test his insulin all the time. Don't you wish there was some kind of praise test? Some kind of test that would say, yeah, you're, you're after the praise of men, or you're after the praise of God, and we can kind of separate the sheep from the goats, and we could say, you prick it, and you kind of, oh, I'm, I'm after the praise of God. And I go over here, and you go up to your, you know, your brother, and you prick him. I knew you were over there, and he's over there with the, seeking the praise of men, right? Don't you wish there was a test? Paul says there is. Verse 17, here's the test. Do you rely on the law? If we rely on the law, we are approval addicts. Verses 17 through 20 is describing law addiction. And if you're saying, I'm not, a, I'm not relying on the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, because you're not a religious person, and, you, and I would say, that's fair. Okay, you may not be relying on, you know, not lying and not committing adultery, and you might not be relying on carving some image in your house that you have your family bowing down to, and you're not, you might not. You might not be relying on those kind of laws. But I bet you rely on the law of achievement. Like here's the law of what success is. How about the law of tenure? How about the law of beauty and body image? We all rely on the law. All right? The law, please hear me, has never been designed this way. And it's not meant to be this way now. It's not designed to be relied upon. Relying on the law is the world of Disney. It's make-believe. It doesn't exist. It's not reality. If you rely on the law, you are getting in the way of what the law is actually trying to accomplish in your life. And you know what the law is trying to do? Do you know what the law and all its effort and its power is after in your life? Achievement of low self-esteem. Humility. How does the law achieve humility? How does the law achieve low self-esteem in us? Look at verses 21 through 23. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Follow the logic here. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by because... You break the law. The law does humility this way. You know what it does? The law teaches you to teach yourself something very important. The law comes along, and it comes alongside us, and it comes here and it says, I'm going to teach you to teach yourself that you're actually messed up. 
The law comes alongside me and it says, Jeff, I'm going to teach you that you steal. That you commit adultery. That you worship idols. And the law is a master teacher in humility. But religious people don't want the law to do that. They never achieve humility. They would rather rely on it as if they can keep it. Spurgeon said, we have plenty of people nowadays who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. I guess that was a newspaper in those days, right? So you kill a mouse, front page, Kardashian thing, right? It's there. Samson killed a lion, he said. And Samson said nothing about it. He didn't even tell his parents he killed the lion. He told nobody, right? The Holy Spirit finds modesty so rare that he takes care to record it. Say much of what the Lord has done for you, but say little of what you have done for the Lord. Do not utter a self-glorifying sentence, unquote. And that's awesome. I wish I could say that. Why do we find it so difficult to achieve low self-esteem? Why do we find it so difficult to achieve humility? I want you to look at 29 again. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, meaning not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So humility is difficult to achieve. Two reasons we've looked at so far. We're approval addicts. We want the praise of men more than we want the praise of God. Okay. And we rely on the law. And here's the third reason. It's a stunner. We can't do it. We can't make ourselves humble. We can't change our lives. Only a work of God's spirit on your heart can. Did you see that? How does the spirit change our hearts? Do you see that in the passage? It's an ancient word. But we've got to ask ourselves, I mean, really evaluate. When you think of how your life changes, let's be real serious here. How do you, how do you believe you're going to change? When you run into a wall and you know, man, this needs to change. Your spouse has been bringing something to your attention. You've been bringing something to your attention. Your friends, you're aware. I've got to change in this area. So what are you going to do? Are you going to... You know, ask the Holy Spirit to do some sort of voodoo on you and some sort of, you know, like magic, and it just kind of happens to you. And you just hope it happens, but you don't know when it's going to happen. You just keep praying that it happens. Or do you, when you, when you think, ah, if I just push the right buttons, then the Holy Spirit will work on me. If I just pray the right prayer, then the Holy Spirit will work on me. Well, then others will say, look, you're just not sincere enough. So, okay, I've got to get a certain level of sincerity. Sincere, sincere. We try to be sincere enough, then God will work in your life. How does God, the Spirit, work in your life and change your heart? You know what the answer is in verse 29? By circumcising your heart. Now, here's the trick. The trick is not to think too deeply about circumcision while we think about circumcision. For obvious reasons, right? Circumcision was a visual visual symbol in the Old Testament of being in a relationship with God, specifically a covenant relationship with God. 
And it symbolized two spiritual realities. Being circumcised symbolized blessing and symbolized curse. It symbolized blessing because you have God's praise, which is life itself. It's the land of the living. You have his love. You have his favor. But curse means if you, if you break this relationship, if you break this covenant, if you don't keep the law, you're cut off. You're cut off from God. It's the penalty of sin. It's the penalty of covenant breaking. But it's a comprehensive cut off. It's being cut off from the land of the living, which means you're cut off not only from God, you're cut off from other people. You're cut off from yourself. You're cut off from your work. You're cut off from the world. You're cut off from everything. So here's the catch. Paul spends 64 verses convincing everyone that you don't keep covenant with God. He convinces all of us that we're sinners. That's his main point for 64 verses, 118 through 320. This is the third sermon. We got one more. Everyone is under the curse of circumcision, of being cut off from the land of the living, Paul is saying. Remember, he's writing, he's writing to Christians. Now, here's what's incredible. In, Coloss- in Colossae, the church in Colossae was made up of, of Gentiles. These were not um, religious people that became Christians, Jewish people that became Christians. So these are Gentiles, which means they're uncircumcised. Listen what Paul says to them. In Jesus, you were circumcised. Not by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Jesus himself. Jesus is the true circumcision. He's the ultimate blessing. And he's the ultimate curse in your place. In Jesus' life, he kept covenant with God perfectly. He obeyed this law that we just spent a lot of time on perfectly. He was the perfect human being. He was truly circumcised for you. He's the blessing of God. He secures God's praise. In his death, Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, which means he was cut off from God. That's why he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' relationship with God was totally wrecked. He was cut off from God, from others, from himself, from the land of the living. Jesus was truly circumcised. Now the Holy Spirit comes along and the Holy Spirit changes your heart and my heart by taking the circumcision of Christ, the blessing that Jesus is, the curse that Jesus became and gives it to your heart 
and circumcises your heart, changes your heart. Now, when that happens for the first time, you become a Christian, but circumcision also has many, many circumcisions that the way God changes your heart in the present is that he takes the circumcision of Christ, Christ being the true circumcision, Christ being the true blessing, Christ being the praise of God, and Christ being the curse who was cut off for you, and he takes that message and continues to apply it to your heart in such a way it becomes clear to your mind, it becomes real to your heart, and you change. Now, when God sees you, he sees you with praise. He sings over you. And now you don't need to look for praise from other people. You don't need to build your life around the praise of other people. You don't need to find your praise from other people. And you don't even need to find it from yourself. And when that happens, when your heart gets circumcised in that way and you start settling into God's praise for you over the praise of yourself, over the praise of your accomplishments, over the praise of your performance, over the praise of other people, you achieve humility. Humility. 